Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. I'm Sean and we're getting ever closer to Essen Ronan. I can almost touch it. Can you can you taste it? Just lick the air like a large snake. Mm, I might get arrested. It's <laughs> happened. Right. This is the third of our SM preview shows. We like to call them treasure hunts. We're going to look at 12 upcoming games without having played them. Just from seeing what's out there, we're going to try and guess whether they are a treasure or a trap. As we always say, don't take these too seriously, no matter how excited we get with our opinions. It's just a guess, and we will give you coverage after the show of most of these games to let you know how they actually played. It's a bit of fun for you to join in at home. Absolutely, Ronan. Yeah, yeah, we do tend to get a little bit absolute sometimes, even though we've never played the games, but yeah, please take ah, Just everything. an opinion. That's what we're here for, to yeah. uninformed opinions. Okay. <laughs> Let's crack on, Sean. There's 12 games waiting to be abused. Absolutely. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we are on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher, and we also have a video channel on YouTube. Let's crack it. We've got Mystery of the Temples to discuss. It's a two to four player game, 20 to 40 minutes, published by Emperor S4, designed by Weimin Ling, who has designed Planet Defenders, Shadows in Kyoto, amongst others. Each player is going to be a curse breaker and they're going to be traveling through wilderness and temples in order to collect crystals. They're collecting these crystals to match the colors of curses which are in the temples. It's going to score them points. The game is set up using cards. There are five temples set around in a circle and interspersed between them are ten wilderness cards. On a player's turn, you declare whether you're going to move via temples or via the wildernesses and you're going to choose to move between one and three spaces of that type going clockwise, skipping any spaces that are occupied by other players. In the wilderness, when you stop there, you can be able to take one of five different colours of crystals, or you can do an exchange where there are clear crystals in the game which don't count as one of the five colours, and you can kind of do some bartering and swap them round. Whenever you take the crystals, they go onto a grid in front of you into a particular pattern, because you're going to have to use them within that pattern when you wish to exchange them. Well, how are you going to exchange them? When you stop at temples, you can either take one crystal of a particular colour or you can attempt to break the curse. Now, breaking curses requires between two and five crystals. They're of specific colours and they must come off that grid you've got in front of you in an order, in a line. And as, as per grids, the spaces are joined by certain lines together. When you break the curse, you place a cube of your colour in there. There's also going to be a small deck of what are called rune cards available. All locations have got a rune symbol on them, and when you stop at them, if you have a rune card that matches the rune symbol on that location, it's going to be able to trigger a special power for you. Once all the curses have been broken, that's going to be game over. You're going to score VP for the curses you've broken, bonus VP for, it's set up at the beginning of the game, three of the five temples are going to give you bonus VP for having gone there, and for having different sets of runes collected from the various places you can do that sean they've made a nice presentation in my eyes and made a pretty table full of what is in fact an abstract game what you do get on the table is really beautiful artwork and really stylish design ronan but yeah you're absolutely right what it is essentially to my eyes is an efficiency puzzle with some screwage going on 
Yeah, and it's quite simple and clean as well. When I look at the game, I'm looking at thinking, this is the sort of system that you sometimes get at the heart of bigger Euros, and they start throwing on lots of extra stuff on there, and they haven't done that with this game. But yeah, I think that system could be done to it. They've kept it clean, they've kept it simple, and then you look at the game length, around half an hour, that's what you're aiming at, Sean. They don't seem to have muddied the waters too much. Yeah, not at all. Everything you're trying to do here, it seems to be very easy in within itself, but there's there's lots of little bits to do and lots of steps that you have to take to get to things. And you throw in that screwage because you can block each other out of places, then it becomes a lot more interesting than, than the simple premise that you start off with. I will say one thing. I, I can't see this playing massively well with two, Ronan, because of that screwage. Yeah, it's going to be wide open. You have 15 places available. And even with four, it's all about, I think, looking at what crystals each other have and go, oh, you're lined up for that curse. I'm going to get in there. Even if I can only do a lower level one, I hand in two red crystals and score a few points. At least I'm delaying you scoring the higher number. And yeah, with two, not so much. There is an advanced option in this, Sean, whereby each player has their own power. It seems like it might make the game even quicker because that kind of ups the ante a little bit. Just before we, we sum up on this one and give our traps or treasures, right? the version I saw and the pictures I saw, the score track seems to be in the box lid. Is that what you saw? Yeah. Sufficiency yeah. and component. Yeah, but if that box isn't right beside you, you ain't seen the score. Sean, you're about seven foot eight. I think you're going to see it from where you are. <laughs> think about the little people. They're not going to be able to see into it. Yeah, I mean... I can't say that makes too much difference to me, mate, on a board, in the box lid, whatever you fancy. It brings you back to the days of the uh, rules inside box lids, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> good old days. Okay, for me, Mystery of the Temples, as I said, beautiful-looking game. I can't see it outstaying its welcome. I think it would be a, a welcome addition to most people's collections, so I want to say treasure. I am also going to go a uh, little treasure here. Nothing too deep, nothing that's going to dominate the uh, the buzz coming out of Essen, but a game that looks solid, looks enjoyable, looks like there's enough interaction there to keep me going. So yeah, Mystery of the Temples for me, also a treasure. Lovely. We're off on the right foot. Okay, I'm going to talk about a game called Fantasy Defense from Mandu Games and Sweet Lemon Publishing, designed by uh, Yoshiyuki Arai and Evan Song. One to two players, and the two-player game version is a cooperative game. So players are defending their city against an invading army of orcs and other creatures. That's pretty much the, the backstory on this one. On the table, you've got a set of gate tiles in a row. And you have two defender decks, a human and an elf, especially for Ronan. Ronan does love to be an elf. You've also got invader decks and a city morale tracker. Once you start with your starting hands, you're going to do the, the following things. You're going to invade, you're going to draw and, and assign invaders to these gates. You are going to deploy your defenders to these gates, and then you're going to resolve this conflict, and defenders win if they match their defense points to the attack mount on the invader cards. You're also then going to reinforce by drawing more defenders into your hands so the invader cards have an attack value and a damage value the defenders have a base defense value and a special power on some of them uh, defenders can move once they're already deployed and every turn one of your defenders that has defended a gate must be discarded 
This game is going to end if all the invaders have been defeated or if the city morale hits zero. As I said, there's a co-op mode. And in this, players may give one defender to the other player. And you can also swap spells around between the players. Fantasy defense, Ronan. So, all right, let's start where you left off there. Can be played solo, can be played two-player. Do you think there's much to be gained for two-player mode in this? I like the thought about switching the card a turn. I like, I like quite like the thought of maybe using your spells to help out the the other player. I think there's enough there to make it just about a two player, but I think it's really all about the solo game. Like all games here, and we've talked about it before in the treasure hunt this time around. It's all about the special powers, Sean. And I didn't see a card list. I didn't see a lot that was going on, so it was kind of hard to get my head around exactly. What I could see was. The attackers seem to have very high hit point levels when you compare them to the defenders. And it seems like it's going to have to be clever card combos that beats them off because like, you've got an attacker with 22 and I'm looking at cards that are doing 2 or 3 damage. I'm trying to work out how you can do that 22 in one round. So hard to judge for me without knowing those card powers, Sean. Well, I can give you a couple of them, Ronan. There are cards in there that like instantly half the value of the attackers. There are cards in there that say round down to the nearest 10. So if the attacker's coming in with 19, perfect card to play. That's now a 10. There are things definitely that can mitigate. There's little spells that can really help you along your way. There's going to need to be. Yeah. It looks a bit brutal. It, I think yeah, there's, there's clever combinations from what I've seen. I watched a Rado run through and some of the cards he put, they work nicely with each other. So I think they are in there for sure. Okay, cool. It's a genre that I like. There doesn't seem to be fiddliness and too much upkeep. And there does seem to be genuine decisions. So... For me, Sean, Fancy Defense has lured me in, and it is a tentative treasure, but one that I very much want to get hands-on before I solidify it on. Yeah, I was really on the fence uh, because of the reason you just said, Ronan, about not knowing what was actually on the cards. But watching that run-through with Rado has really sort of shored me up on this, and for me, it's a treasure also. That's a good positive start to the uh, episode. <laughs> Let's move on to Indian Summer, a one to four player game, 15 to 60 minutes, coming from Stronghold Games and Edition Spielvase. From Uwe Rosenberg, who Patchwork, Cottage Garden, Feast for Odin, Agricola, and many, many more. First of two of his games we're going to be talking about in this episode. Indian Summer is a sequel to Cottage Garden, and similarly to that, you're going to be placing polyomino tiles onto a board when they're taken from a selection in the middle. These happen to be leaf tiles, because it's representing the fall in, I believe, New England. As a twist to the other polyomino games that have been out so far, these ones have got holes in them. Now, the first to cover their whole board is going to win the game. We start with five tiles of various sizes, and we start with three treasures. And a lot about the game is those treasures, and we're going to come back to them. On your turn, you're going to either play tile onto your board in front of you your board is split up into six different areas you can cover up anything you like on there it's about where you leave the holes that's important you can leave the hole over whatever you like to be honest however there are going to be symbols on your player board that if you leave a hole over them they get covered with a treasure tile from the supply and when you complete one of those six areas on your board you get to take the treasure tile becomes available to you and they give you special powers when you play them for example, if you have a mushroom, you'll be able to take two tiles from another player and play them onto your board. Or a feather allows you to place two of your tiles at the same time. 
instead of playing one of your own tiles, if you get in a sort of struggle, you can also play a squirrel, which is the equivalent of a flower pot in Kodja Garden, and will just cover one square for you. There are some other bits and bobs going on. For example, other treasures. If you use a berry, you have a path of five tiles available to you. And when you use all five tiles, you get to take another five and that's your path available to you again. The berry will let you refill and give you more choice before you've gotten and spent all of your five tiles at once. You've got a nut which will let you play an extra squirrel to help you fill up those boards and trigger your treasures. There are animal tiles in the middle. Now they are shared between everyone. And if you make a pattern of holes on your board, you'll be able to take an animal tile that exactly matches that pattern and put it over there. And there are treasures already on the animal tile. See, as well as getting the treasures you claim by, by covering them, you get the treasures which are on the animal tile and they'll help you fill your board quicker as well. Sure, and it's all about getting these polyominoes down, as we've seen in Bear Park and Patchwork and Cottage Garden and even Feast for Odin. But there is a twist here. He's turned it up a little bit. Has he turned up enough for you? So Mr. Rosenberg never saw a polyhominoes that he didn't want to lie down on a board. Did he? he truly didn't. He just loved covering things. He, he just loves it. I think that the hole mechanic, where there's the hole and you're trying to lay down, that in itself is interesting. It gives you uh, more of a spatial awareness thing going on. It is interesting on the base of it, just trying to get those to match up in the right way. And also, I think the special powers are going to make or break this game for me, Ronan. Yeah, and everyone's board has got sort of an individual pattern, although the same amount of where these treasure spaces are. It's not just one way of thinking about it. Because quite often, the treasures are quite close to each other. So if you're trying to get holes to cut, it's not going to be possible to get all your treasures, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And that hole, be able to claim the bonus animal tile. And the game's going to be quite tight because you're all getting a similar amount of tiles. You've all got you know, the same size ones. It's how you trigger that extra stuff that's really going to show who's going to win the game. Yeah, right. So what do you think about the look of the game? Lots of people are declaring it absolutely stunning. So I went in there kind of expecting to see a really beautiful game. And it's okay. Kind of reminds me of one of my son's projects at school at the moment because the leaves are falling. They're making things with leaves. I wasn't blown away. I think the final board, when you've got the green, orange and red leaves laid down, are going to look really great. The other things, like the player board stuff, the treasure tiles, I'm not that fussed by them, to be honest with you. So I think maybe at the end it's going to look great. Before that, mm, I could definitely give or take the, the whole overall look. For me to decide whether this is a treasure or trap, I kind of looked at the three games that Ronan mentioned before. I actually looked at two, but he reminded me of Baron Park, so I'm going to add that one in as well. Is it going to be a Cottage Garden beta? Probably. I really didn't like Cottage Garden. But the other two, Baron Park and Patchwork, am I really going to want to play this over them? Yes, the special powers are interesting, but not quite interesting enough for me. So it's a very, very slight trap. Oh, mm. just enough in there for me. Definitely looks better than Cottage Garden. Slightly more going on the Baron Park, although that's not necessarily a good thing because I like the simple elegance of Baron Park and the theme, obviously, bears. So I have tottered over to the other side of that line, Sean, and I have gone treasure. And actually, the big thing that I thought was an improvement over Cottage Garden is it's not those tiny boards where you're completely limited. At least you've got your whole board available to you and you've got choices to make rather than being very limited in so that's why it pushes it away from cottage garden into treasure territory and that's indian summer 
Right, so my next game is Pioneers from Queen Games, designed by Emmanuel Ornella, and it's a two to four player game. This was the one that came out in that Kickstarter double pack with Merlin, and I kind of felt it got a bit, little bit overshadowed by Merlin. But in this game, players are trying to use coaches to transport pioneers to cities in order to populate those cities, build roads, and earn money. So on your play area, there's a, a double-sided board which flips over for the player cap. And you have multiple cities connected by lines which are roads. And each of these will have a pioneer tile depicting a banker, a barkeeper, merchant, sergeant, a gold digger, a farmer and a hotel. On your player board, you're going to have your income, your ability to buy roads and coaches and a turn summary. On a turn, you're going to claim that income and then you're going to be able to purchase roads and coaches now you lay the roads down to make other people pay to use them and coaches are going to carry your pioneers once they reach a town and you're going to be able to take the matching pioneer off the board and put your pioneer your own player pioneer down there's one stagecoach on the board and this is going to be moved by everybody along the connecting roads they're going to move into a city place the pioneer from their coach and take the pioneer token from the city this will give them a one-off or ongoing power then they're going to offer other players the chance of placing their pioneers down but they're not going to get the power they have to pay the player to do this if you should manage to empty one of your coaches you're going to get points for doing that which is you're also going to score points at the end of the game you're going to get two points for each pioneer on your largest road network you're going to get points for empty coach spaces on non-empty coaches and any gold nuggets you've managed to collect along the way there you go that's pioneers ronan yes it's got that magic queen tickle sean when i start reading a queen rule book i'm happy it makes me content because they lay everything out so well it's eight pages they make it seem very simple and what they've done here is put together some simple euro mechanisms enough of them in a different way that i don't feel like i'm reading rules to a game i've already played i don't feel unfamiliar but my brain does start ticking over and one of them in particular is that the whole game centers you think on getting those coaches because they have particular player powers you can be able to trigger trying to get the coach to where you want to go and then triggering the player powers but in fact, when you get to the end, you get to the scoring. That route building is just massively important. You said there that on your turn, you can place a pioneer and you can offer for other players. And it sounds great for them. Yeah, I'll place a pioneer. It gets out of my way. But they're all going to score points for whoever's got the roads connected to there. And the whole route spatial aspect suddenly dawned on me as being fantastically important. Yeah, and once you've laid those roads, players have to pay to go onto those roads as well. So, yeah, the roads are really super important. I also like, Ronan, is that push-pull with the actual stagecoach, because you might want to go in a certain direction, but everybody's using the same stagecoach on the board. So you've kind of got to work your way around where other people are going as well. Oh, did you say you like that? Or did you not like it? <laughs> it's one of my least favourite mechanisms in any game it's ever been in the shared movement of one piece because you're like well, let's say we're playing a four player game well, if you three move it somewhere that doesn't suit me what am I going to do just, that's it alright it doesn't suit me great brilliant I've built a road network down here you've moved it up there I'm not going to add to that road network am I adapt adapt I, 
I can't think of games in which that's ever worked for me. That's probably my biggest holdback. Uh, I love the, the varied powers with the different pioneers. And when you're choosing that coach, it's like, oh, well, the farmers are great because I can get three dudes down. But am I going to be on my road networks? Other than that, they're useless. There's a little push your luck of, of going for the nuggets and mining. There's just lots of small, interesting decisions which all link together in a way that makes sense in my brain, Sean. Yeah, and I think on this one, money is going to be so important because you don't start with a lot of money. There's not really a lot of money around. And just trying to to get those roads down, to get those additional coaches, it's going to cost you every time. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a real tight little brain burner, Ronan. Oh, you're there, mate. This is a treasure. This is the archetypal essence treasure of a medium weight euro that's tight and thinky and you've got various different things pulling at your attention but you can only really do one at a time despite the shared movement i really like the look of pioneers and i am in sean treasure good stuff i mentioned at the top of this the fact that it was in with Merlin in that double bundle and it kind of got overshadowed. I did that for a reason because I think this is the game that could come out above Merlin once people start getting to play it and the buzz starts building. I think there's a really tight, interesting game in here. I don't think it looks particularly great on the table, but for me, it's a definite treasure. Harsh. Once you've got all those different colour pioneers all over and it's higgledy-piggledy, but not a slight criticism, it's a treasure. Let's leave it at that. It's a definite treasure for me. That's pioneers. My last game for this half is Altiplano. Two to five player game, 60 to 120 minutes from DLP Games. This is designed by Rainer Stockhausen, who designed Audion, Siberia, Crazy Kick and some others. Players are going to be cultivating in the high plateau of South America, but what they're mechanically going to be doing is bag building along the line of Orleon, but in this case, it's not people going in your bag, it's discs that represent different goods. You're going to be gathering, converting, and storing resources to get through your harsh life cultivating this plateau and to be prepared to go forward. The majority of the action is going to take place on seven different locations, which are laid out around the table. Each player has got, in effect, one worker, and they have got one cart, which will allow them to move that worker for free on a turn to one of the seven locations, and they're going to be able to start taking actions from there, which will all be powered by their discs. There is the ability to get more carts in the game to give you more freedom of movement. When you move your cart to a place, there are location-specific actions you can take there. Now... Prior to taking your actions, everyone's going to have drawn discs from their bag, four to start with, more if you build more roads, and they're going to lay them out, and then they're going to plan their actions beforehand simultaneously, and then move the worker and go for it. Sort of things you're going to be doing is building up combinations of a resource engine, for example, getting alpacas using food, which will then be able to give you wool, which will then be able to give you cloth. I mentioned food there you need food the whole thing is driven by food or fish you can go mining for stone you can get wood from the forest using that wood you can build a boat that will give you access usually building a boat to one particular type of good to start another system in your engine for example if you build a boat to get access to a fish you can then use that fish to get more fish and move onwards and upwards from there you can also build houses as part of the game 
resources that you have at the end are going to score you points most of them some of them were zero but every house you build boosts a particular resource by one victory point each at the end of the game you've got a warehouse you able to put goods into your warehouse and you need to get points for filling up rows each row can only have one particular type or for filling the whole lot up and having lots of different types in there there are orders that come in for trading and they'll have a particular set of discs on there that they require you take the order card whenever you fulfill the order that's also going to score you vp at the end of the game you can build roads to get extra actions as i said to use more than four discs on a turn each player has got a special power as well which you get at the beginning of the game which gives them access to an action just for them and you can get more of those by spending money that you've got from fulfilling orders and doing various things and using your boats and that will allow you to buy what are called expansions which again are action spaces which will only be available to you they may be similar to actions already on the board they can be special conversion ones they can give you special powers there's lots of different ones in the game they will come out from a deck and five will be available for each turn Whenever you spend these discs, they don't actually spend them. They just go back into a container and then they're going to come back available to you. So the way the discs rotate through is they're in your bag. You pull them out. You plan with them. You use them for actions. They go into your container. When your bag's empty, you take them out of the container and throw them back in again. That whole bag building thing. Those seven locations I was talking about, they are filled with cards and resources. If they get depleted, it will trigger the end of the game. The end of the game will also trigger if action cards run out or if those extension cards are depleted. Just as a reminder, what you're going to score at the end, you're going to score VPs for your boats, for the orders you fulfilled, the houses, they're going to boost the resources you kept, and the warehouse, the stuff you've been able to store in there. Sean Orleon is a game that's got a lot of love, including from me. This is the follow-up. There is some excitement amongst heavier Euro gamers. What were your first footings climbing up to the plateau of Alta Plano? We're going to have to address the alpaca in the room. <laughs> I want to hug it and stroke it. <laughs> I actually am beginning to love that box. I'm about to say, is this the worst or the best box art ever? Both. I think, because I do like an alpaca, <laughs> I'm actually leaning towards it's the best. I tell you what, it stands out of the crowd. It's doing kind of what Lorenzo Il Magnifico did last year. It was so ugly. Oh, it stands out better than that. Lorenzo was grumpy European man in a pattern. That's, that's <laughs> it, was, it was ugly. And people were like, oh, what's that ugly box? And they come and had a look at it because it was very ugly. I don't think this one's specifically <laughs> ugly. The alpaca is quite cute. But it's, it's definitely a box that is designed for people to go, what the heck? So Yeah, but... What's a box cover for? What's the function of a box cover? It's to get attraction, right? Yeah. If you say to people, the alpaca game, they all know what you're talking about. It could be a piece of, it might be reversed, but a piece of genius, Sean. Everyone's heard of how to play, though, possibly because of that box. Absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, Orleon, bag building, and especially in this game, bag thinning as well, which is quite interesting. Again, same as all on. What are your general thoughts on the genre and Mr. Stockhausen's previous game? Well, I'm a big, big fan of Orleon. It would have been in my top 50 if I'd got more plays of it, for sure. Really enjoy that. And that bag-building system, I think it's worked really well in the past for me, and I've really enjoyed it. In this game itself, there's, there's absolutely tons going on, though, isn't there, Ronan? Well, it can seem overwhelming. I think that the 
first plays are going to be like that. You go, wow, there's so much going on. But in my head, it seemed like you're going to need to specialise down particular routes. And you're going to decide, right, I'm a forester. I'm getting loads of wood that allow me to build houses and go onwards from there. And that you'll find your own path. And although it does seem like there's a lot going on, from afar, I thought it sounded like it might be quite quick, Sean. Because everyone draws their discs Everyone plans simultaneously. Then you just go around going one action, one action, one action, one action, one action. Most actions require multiple discs. So when you're starting with four, yeah, you can get more. People might only be doing two or three actions per turn. So I can see this clipping along and downtime being not so much of an issue. So I was thinking it was going to go quite long. I was just thinking because you've got so many avenues, there's going to be a bit of AP in terms of like, what, where, do, where do I concentrate? What do I do next? You're going to have to constantly react to the discs that you pull out. And in my elongate, not, not in a bad way, in a thinky, oh, oh, I've got choices here. So uh, I, I don't see it being a quick game. I'm going to throw it back at you, though. Mm-hmm. Most actions require specific discs. It's not like there's loads of things you can do with an alpaca. You can basically get wool from it or you can eat it. Sorry, folks, you can eat the alpaca. Don't eat the alpaca. (laughs) So when you draw the alpaca, you're going to go, all right, do I eat it or do I eat wool out of it? And I think it's much more what you need to consider is what discs am I taking? How am I building that bag? Because when you take them out, I'm not convinced there's that much to do. Okay, like wood and stone maybe, but certainly as you advance along, mm, I'm, I'm disagreeing with you. I'm disagreeing with you. Oh, cool. Well, the proof will be in the eating of the pudding, as you say, Roman. You do love... No, you love saying it. You definitely say that more often than I do. I'd just like to throw it back at you, because you, you were very specific. <laughs> I used to say You've proof will be in pudding. the pudding. <laughs> You've never thrown pudding at anyone. Don't, you wouldn't waste pudding. Oh, really, okay. really One other thing that was exciting me, Sean, is that with those expansions and you're getting your own starting individual role, I like that you can build your own tableau of actions and you can direct where you're going. You know, that's something that I love in the game. Yeah, absolutely. You can certainly have lots of different routes to victory. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you have control over those routes. I don't think you're necessarily just going to find yourself towards the end of the game. Oh, I just happened to be on this one. I think you are definitely going to have to drive towards something. And I I like that. I like that a lot. So I'm going to sum up. I like pudding. I like pudding. (laughs) So I'm going to sum up. Right. So the hardest part of this game for me was engaging with the theme. And I kind of thought about it, and I really like alpacas. My son's got a little toy alpaca called Alan, so we're going to give that a pass. So I am definitely interested in this. I trust the designer. I trust the publisher. So for me, it's an absolute treasure. Treasure, 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 treasure. Move on. What was it? Treasure. Oh, okay. That's a treasure for Alteplano. Right, we're going to finish off. This half of the episode with Ticket to Mars from GDM Games, designed by Eugenie Costano. Two to five players. The backstory for this one is Earth is about to be destroyed, and only part of the population can be transported off Earth. Players are mega corporations. They're basically trying to get their people off Earth. Players are going to get five action cards and a random objective card at the beginning of the game. There is a central board with a score track, an ignition countdown track, and various rockets to take the people off Earth. And you're going to place crew tokens into these. On a turn, you're going to play one of the four types of action cards that you have. And these are to place the crew on the rocket, to take crew off the rocket, to move crew between rockets, 
and to move the countdown marker backwards one space and get all of your own cards back into your hand. If the countdown marker ever gets to zero, that's the end of the round. At the end of the game, you look to see if you have reached the objective. And the objectives are people in certain rockets, in certain orders, that kind of thing. And you're going to play a number of rounds and the highest points win. Ronan, was this a rule book or a just general idea about what a game like this should be? Should be. Could be. Could be. <laughs> might be. It's in a quantum state. We're not sure exactly what it is. Yeah, I said a number of rounds there because we don't actually know how many rounds are in a game. We don't know how a round finishes. We don't know exactly how you score points. Yeah, not really sure how the countdown track works and when it goes down or up. Who are crew? Is it you've got your own colour crew? Are there other colour crews? There are some. There's a ability you have to get pairs in, but is it just as an example of pairs? But what's pairs? Pairs of what? Mm-hmm. Are pairs of colour? Pairs of a pick? Pe- what? I don't. <laughs> that is more of an experiment in interpretive graphic layout than it is a rule book. <laughs> it's as you said. We were talking about this off <laughs> off the show, and it's more like a leaflet about the game. It's not a rules book. I, I think I called it a pamphlet. A pamphlet. Oh, fair enough. The <laughs> <laughs> flyer. Yeah, this is this is a little fella that has got no videos out in English or German. It's got an absolute mess of a rule book posted online. I can't see them getting overwhelmed at the booth first thing Thursday morning, mate. It's not a good example of how to sell a game at Essen, is it? It certainly isn't. I've read the entire rule book in its four-page entirety, and I have the barest, barest idea how to play. This is, I think, really, it's only on here to, for anyone who's listening, if you ever think you're selling a game at Essen, go have a look at their Board Game Geek page, and that will tell you how not to do things, because uh, this is going to get overlooked. It's not getting overlooked by us, Sean. We're going to try and play it. Firstly, because I want to be able to email the designer and say, what are the answers to all these questions? Or the publisher, what are the answers to all these questions? Now, why did I have to ask you all these questions, mate? Just at least to say, look, if you're going to have a rule book, at least put the rules in there. You give me flashbacks to Island Dice. I'm going straight in. It's a trap, mate. We just need more information. But I'm going to play it just out of stubbornness. Yeah, I think you kind of have to just play these types of things just to see what the heck is going on. I quite like the art. I don't think there's a lot to the game. But yeah, not not having the rules in a rule book is a massive faux pas. So yeah, absolute trap for me. And we will see you in the second half of the show in a few moments. Let's go, Sean. We are going for the second Uwe Rosenberg design. It's Nussfjord. One to five players, 20 to 100 minutes, I'm guessing player dependent, from Lookout and Mayfair Games. In this game, each player is going to be running a fishing company in Newsfield itself on the archipelago of Lofton. You're going to be attempting to increase your shipping fleet, clear forests to allow you to build buildings, and you're going to be issuing and claiming shares from each other's companies and recruiting elderness. 
So what do you actually do in the game? Well, first of all, you're going to have a size of fishing fleet, which you'd have built up during the game. Starts off with just three. And you're going to catch as many fish as the size of your fleet allows. Then you don't just get those fish. You have to distribute around the place. First thing you have to do is feed any elders that you've recruited during the game. These elders are going to allow you access to special actions as you play, but they cost fish. Then, other players are going to be able to claim these shares in your company, as I said. You must give other players with any shares in your company fish from your catch. Then if you have any shares in your own company, and you will do, you start with a couple, you get to keep some of your fish, and the rest goes into reserve, sitting, pending, awaiting your collection. During a round after that, you're going to place three workers, and there are various places you can put them, mostly on the main board. That's going to, for example, allow you to claim those fish from your reserve. It's going to allow you to use fish to feed a banquet. There are plates available that you put fish on, and that's going to give you gold back into yourself. You also have got on your board, as well as places for your ships and to put your elders, you've got places for buildings, but some of them are covered with forests. You can clear forests, and that's going to give you wood resource. You can also plant forests. There's a couple of reasons you might want to do that for access to more wood, but also because empty spaces on your board are going to cost you points at the end of the game. You can also offer or buy shares. Now, you might want to offer shares because when you offer a share, you can be able to claim some gold. Also, any shares you haven't offered during the game will all cost you VP. If you wish to buy shares, whichever shares are on offer, you're going to spend money and take them all, and then that will give you fish income every time the person who owns that company goes out fishing. Other things you can do, well, you can build ships. Ships, as you know, are going to give you more fish every time you go fishing, but they'll also score you VP at the end of the game. They cost a combination of fish, wood and gold. We'll be talking about them all the way through. Those are the three resources in the game. And back there, I mentioned elders. You can take elders onto your board. They give you a special action for yourself. Or you can use an elder using one of your three workers. You can build buildings. They come in a particular stack. They're, they're lined up going from here to there. As in, the early ones will give you better powers but fewer points. And on through to the later ones, the, the C stack, they're going to give you chances to score endgame VP but no powers. After seven rounds, each player is going to add up their VPs for the buildings, the ships, the shares they've got, and any gold they've got. They're going to lose points for those free spaces on their board and for any shares they haven't offered. Sean Newsfjord, a worker placement game from Ulve Rosenberg, is gaining a lot of attention. It is gaining a lot of attention, Ronan, and something I wanted to uh, to ask your opinion on. A lot of people are saying that it's it's very much in the in the mould of a glass road, that type of Rosenberg game. Now I know there's a bit of forest clearance going on, but what did you think? I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled. There is one aspect in that you clear the forest and then you put buildings into those spaces. But for the rest of it, there's only three resources in this game. From memory, there's 12 or something in Glass Road. Glass Road had that funny dial, I know, for counting backwards and forwards of resources, your force conversion. That's not in there. But most importantly, this is placing three workers. You get 21 actions a game. For Glass Road, it was that action selection. You can match other people and what have you. The driving mechanisms, I don't think, are anything like each other at all there's just some superficial similarities with that spatial aspect in the buildings fair enough the theme Ronan the theme and the art I'm trying to think of a nice way of putting boring <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't manage it by the way I didn't ah 
I was working on that. <laughs> a close miss by using the word boring for boring. Uh, what the weirdest thing for me was that you've got these three resources, wood and gold, but then you're using fish to build ships and you're using fish to build buildings. That was, for some reason, that threw me off. The theme is it's no, no weirder than the other theme, no weirder than Alta Plano, for example. I think that, though, when Rosenberg sets a theme like that, running and fishing you can kind of go well it's kind of like farming kind of like having my dwarf caves people are expecting a heavier game and in this the depth i'm feeling sean is much more gateway intro level very much a standard worker placement game i'm not seeing anything special or deep to elevate it now the only thing i can really point out and say that that's actually quite interesting is the shares option it's not a new thing by any any stretch but the shares in other people's companies and that you're going to get something when they go out fishing etc that's quite interesting it's kind of gives you a little bit of a balance i mean it's nice when you get the fish it's what you do with the fish then i'm like "Mm, okay cool there's a lot of "Mm," noises coming out of me maybe we should just sum up Ah, mm, mm." (laughs) okay for me when rosenberg hits he hits home hard and this one it's it's a bit of a miss the theme doesn't grab me the art doesn't draw me in it's not looking like a deep enough game for me or an interesting enough game so i'm going to say it's a trap i was super excited up until the point when yesterday they posted the rule book and I read it and there's just can't see anything in there mechanically to grab me and say, come and play this game, which is forcing me. And I'm very, ugh, I'm disappointed. I think it's a trap. I'm going to try and get a play in, but it's gone from definitely buying to going to have to wait and see. But uh, news forward is a trap. I'm afraid, Sean, lead us on. Okay, I'm going to go with 12 Heroes. This is a two-player game coming from Product Arts LLC and Catch-Up Games, designed by Takashi Sakawe and Masato Usugi. In this game, players are feudal lords, and they are forming a party of 12 heroes to acquire land and territory. So on the table, you have three regions worth up to two to four victory points. And these are placed in the middle, and players will select their 12 heroes or 12 cards from 18 available. So you're going to build your own deck to start with. You'll start with five in hand, and then you're going to play unit cards. And these have a military strength, and they're going to be deployed to that player's side of a location. During a control phase, the strength from both sides will be measured with the highest allowing that player to place a control marker place enough markers and you will get that card if you acquire seven victory points in this way you're going to win the game right that sounds very simple but it's not that easy food is a major issue in this game you're going to need food to muster your troops put them into your play area deploy them onto the regions and retain those deployed units Units have a food cost to muster them. They're going to take a certain amount of food to the region, and this is what's going to be used to keep your cards in that region. Units also have a special power and can be moved from region to region. So an asymmetrical sort of battle game, Ronan. That's 12 heroes. Yes, certainly not an underutilised niche within the market, shall we say. So let's kick off. Really nice artwork, Sean. The box looks epic. The actual cards themselves have got fantastic artwork. That would have drawn me in just by itself. Cards look absolutely beautiful. And there's a goat. 
Come on. Any game, there is a goat. Any game that you can deploy a goat to a battle has to be a winner. Tom Tom Brady's in it. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay. There is a goat. Mechanically, though, when you move on from there, to me, I mean, it's very standard that you're waging over battlefields, you're putting down cards. It needs something to make it different. So the good for me is that in terms of getting control and scoring those victory points, it's not a one-off like it is in lots of these games. You have to maintain control for a while so that when your opponent plays cards down, yes, they might gain one thing of control, but you've got a couple of turns to react to it and build up your response. That is is nice, I think. Sometimes these can feel too brutal when someone's able to play a clever combo straight out of their hand and that's it, you've lost that area. Yeah, absolutely, Ron. The fact that you have to keep that pressure on, keep building it up, and that's where food comes in. So you're not only using the food to deploy your units, to muster your units, but to keep them in the battle. I think food is crucial to making this game stand out from the others of this type. All right, it's crucial. What's your opinion on that mechanism, though? I actually think it's quite clever, the fact that you, you're bringing the food into battle, you're using that food constantly to keep your troops fed while they're there. I, th- I quite like the thought of it. You're the wrongest wrongen that ever lived in the history of wrong. No, no, I think you've taken that mantle quite clearly because you're going to say something <laughs> different. I've got an army with an archangel in it and an iron giant and a dragon. Oh, oh, oh by the way, archangel, yeah? Here's some food. Will you just, will you just take that to the front with you? What? Just, just, yeah, just carry some rations. What? The troops need food about? in. Someone's got to bring it. Well, then don't use this theme. This wild fantasy, a goat fighting a giant and a troll. And then there's a logistics dude. It's one of your units. What? what? Hey, what? Huh? Was he going to get to the front carrying his food and then fight a giant, is he? Hey? What's he going to hit him with? It's wild and wacky. I love it. Wild, wacky, weird, fussy... <laughs> Too much bother with all that food nonsense. Maybe because I'm getting weary of rules, but the whole food thing for the weight of game, for what was going on, just put me off entirely and made 12 hours a trap, Sean. I didn't... Yeah. Uh, mate, I went the other way. The food thing turned me onto it. I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. That's a really clever way of having to maintain your troop at the battlefield and not just losing one randomly. I think the text on the cards are going to make or break the game, but I'm going to give it... I'm going to take a gamble on this one and make it a cheeky little treasure. That's 12 heroes. Yeah. Get it. Okay. Liberatores. Three to six players, 40 to 60 minutes for more ideas. Designed by Jan Yegorov, who designed Swords and Bagpipes and Gentleman's Deal. There's a plot to overthrow Julius Caesar. The Republicans are working hard to remove the despot and restore the Senate. In this game, you're going to have teams of Republicans who are going to cooperate together to remove Julius Caesar from power. There's going to be competitors who are going to look like they're working to restore the power of the Senate, but actually are looking to replace Caesar with themselves as dictator. And there's going to be an agent who's going to be working to keep Caesar in power. These are secret roles which you are given in the game as you fight to control the political power in Rome in the last dying breaths of i don't know if we could still call it the republic when caesar was in power but there wasn't officially an emperor yet so that that whatever we call it there the game is going to be driven by a deck of citizen cards first thing you do is set aside brutus cassius and mark antony you shuffle the rest and you place three out available each player is going to have one of those hidden roles and on their turn they're going to take one action the actions they can take are 
They can bribe a citizen by paying it gold, and then each citizen is unique, by the way, and move it to the left-hand side of a board, which has a track of power swinging between the Senate, Liberatores, and Julius Caesar. And if they bribe a citizen and put it on the Liberatores side, then the balance of power is going to swing that way. They're going to score influence for that side. The second thing they could possibly do is pay money to hire the citizen that is in the right-hand side, and they can add it to either their own tableau or to others' tableau. Now, if you offer a citizen, or indeed there's a chance to hire other things called servants, and give them to someone else, they can't refuse them. And some of these will be positive, and some of these will be negative. So some of them you're going to want to keep in order to trigger later on, because citizens are going to give you either instant abilities when you take them, passive abilities every time something is triggered on your turn in the game or they're going to allow you to trigger a power when you take the third action available in the game and that is endorsing caesar now you endorse caesar by taking the right hand citizen putting it to the right hand side of the board towards caesar's side the influence will move around towards Caesar depending upon who the citizen is that has been endorsed. And then you are going to receive money from Caesar, which is, you're going to have to do it sometimes. Otherwise, you're going to run out of money, no matter what side you're playing for. However, if the influence for Caesar ever reaches 15 more than it is for the Liberatores, then it's an instant win for Caesar. After you've chosen one of those three main actions... You're going to get to trigger the things in your tableau. Everyone has a wife, for example, that will allow them to hire those servants, which will affect endgame scoring. And then we go through other powers that are available to you. If you get to the end of the citizen deck and it's size dependent on the number of players, the day of action cards revealed. Those three special characters, Brutus, Cassius and Mark Antony, which were set aside, are added. The line of citizens now becomes six long. And we're going to have six more turns in which those six remaining citizens are utilised, powers are utilised. Then, at the end of the game, everyone is going to reveal their identity. There will be some endgame powers triggered by servants and citizens. Then we check to see who's won. If the balance of power in Rome is more towards Caesar, then immediately that one agent in the game has won. That's it all over. If, however, it is towards Liberatores, there are two different ways of winning. If any of the competitors have got more personal influence stored up by triggering their citizens than any of the Republicans, then that competitor is the solo victor of the game. If, however, any Republican is the person left, not that agent, has got the most personal influence. All the Republicans win as a team. It is a game of political intrigue, of influencing citizens, of having to compromise your actions, Sean, and sometimes having to hide what you're doing. Everyone's going to have to go to Caesar sometimes. He holds all the power. You're going to have to balance that. That would not be revealing who you are. What were your thoughts on Liberatories? Well, first off, I love the theme, and it's another game where the, the graphical design, the artwork is just, it's on point. I really, really like the look of the game. And I think that's kind of a theme running through a lot of the Essen games this year is they're looking really good. They're looking really strong. Looking fine, Mr. Rice. Looking they're looking fine. fine. They are looking Does fine. Does look fine. Now, I was a little bit concerned going with this game to you because of that hidden roll thing. They're having to lie a bit to each other. The fact there's a lot of screwy cards and screwy powers on those cards. What were you feeling in terms of that, of the whole group dynamics? It's a game about politics, but there's also the meta politics going on around the table. I think if a game is set up and says, like, this is what it's about, then it's fine. Absolutely. Like, in Spartacus, you don't 
go to Spartacus thinking you're not going to get stitched up or getting upset because you are getting stitched up. You're expecting it. You laugh it when it happens and you try and hit the other person or the other players back twice as hard. Now, the thing that kind of worried me about this one slightly is I can't see how covert you're going to be able to be. It feels like you're, it's going to be fairly obvious. Yeah, there's times when, yeah, you have to take, you have to sort of support Caesar because you need the money. But generally, I thought it was going to be fairly obvious what side you're on. That, to me, was a concern as well. And it was all really down to the money system. If you're out of money, then you have to go to Caesar. That's the only way of getting it. And you have to give him. And it's the timing of that. And if you're playing with more than three players, now three players can work but you need a dummy player so really it's a four to six player game which is brave in itself in the market so applause for that not everything needs to be a two-player game all right anyway you are, do run out of money you're not going to see the citizen that you're going to be forced to endorse with until it's gone around the table so i think that might help sean because i might just go i've got no money i have to endorse them whoever they are and it comes along and it's something massively powerful that's going to shine the spotlight on that person like, oh no you can't do that he's going to score seven points i've got no choice i've got no money what can i do mate it's a little bit of the dark moon thing is oh, i rolled all negatives what can i do and that person who's hiding is really trying to wait until too late i think the influence thing is really interesting because if i'm one of the competitors i can't go racing off and get loads of personal influence i have to kind of stay amongst the pack and not make it too obvious and then maybe spring at the very end Uh, there's a delicious timing to that but it all hinges on how well the money system works yeah absolutely i think if it is too obvious it's kind of going to ruin that first part of the game yeah i know you turn over the cards at a certain point but yeah i like the thought of this with more players i think this is the type of game the more the merrier the more that's going on the more sort of subterfuge i think the better and for me it's not generally the type of game that i really enjoy but I love the theme, love the look of it, and I'd really like to play Libertores. So it's a treasure for me. Totes on board there, especially with the right group. Could be a bit group dependent, but I am very hopeful for Libertores. It's going to give me that nasty backstabby thing that I like in Tamley Hall Spartacus, things like that. Totally hopeful treasure for me, Sean. Okay, next up is Barley from White Goblin Games, designed by Klaus Jürgen Reed. Two to four players. This is a re-implementation of Rapa Nui, the Cosmos game. So players are the people of Bali, and they are going to be gathering goods to offer to the gods and the spirits of their ancestors in order to appease them. It's a card game, and in the game, the cards are going to be... You've got priests, shrines, stonemasons, and farmers, and the farmers are going to be rice, peanut, banana, and pepper farmers. Okay, so these cards form the player's hands and form the offering area. So on a turn, you can play one, two, or three farmers or a priest, a shrine, or a stonemason onto your tableau. The stonemasons are generally going to give you stone, which is your currency. The farmers are going to give you the produce to sacrifice later on. The priests are all about points, and shrines are a bit of both. They're points and stone. So why are you doing this? So why are you doing this? Two reasons. So you're going to try and reduce the cost of straight up buying those sacrifices. If you have three banana farmers in your hand, normally the cost of the sacrifice for a banana card would cost you five stone. If you have three banana farmers in your tableau, it's only going to cost you two. 
After playing the cards, the players are going to draw back up to three, which is their hand limit. And the last card that they reveal in the offering pile is going to trigger scoring of any matching cards. In the player tableaus, however, if a shrine is built, it triggers a sacrifice phase where players place sacrifice cards on a little cardboard altar. This is going to determine the points for each type of sacrifice at the game ends. So at the game end, you're going to score up your points. You're going to have VP counters. You're going to have those shrines. You're going to have every five stone and those sacrifice cards, which are going to score you one, two or three points, depending on what's gone into the altar. There are two variants that come with this one as a demon, and that's going to stop you using one of the offering columns of cards and an oracle, which is going to give you more control and knowledge of the sacrifices. Bali Ronan, have you ever played Rapa Nui? I have not played Rapa Nui, although I do think that maybe the Easter Island theme made more sense with stone being your currency. I'm not really puzzled that stone is the currency in this one. I think it's a hangover from the earlier game. But anyway, the other thing I thought was everything is driven by that stone. Everyone starts with one stone mace in their hands. They're going to get one income in stone. So like to build a shrine costs seven, to buy just one sacrifice card costs five okay minus the discount for farmers it feels like it's going to be a slow burn it's going to take a while for this to really get rolling so i actually have played weaponry ronan and it is a absolutely faithful transition over to it the only difference is those additional add-ons with the demon and the oracle now it is a really slow start and it, it does take a while to get going and it is a while before those shrines will come into play for sure but you've still got that mechanism in which you're revealing the card and you're scoring each turn every time you reveal a card in the offering pile. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like that could maybe have been accelerated. If you're going to redo the game, why don't you look at the thing that people are not that excited by and change it up? Because it's not like Rapa Nui was a huge hit or you know, it was massively successful and everyone was clamoring for a reprint. I feel like they could have improved on it a little bit. But anyway... It's interesting that in order to be able to get a lot of sacrifice cards, you're going to have to specialise. So your example, you'll get loads of banana farmers. And yet, players drive then what bananas will be worth at the end of the game. And people are going to try and avoid putting them into the shrine in order to stitch you up. And how much you can specialise and become a target, or you just want to be a jack-of-all-trades. Okay, I like the way that your choices have other implications it's not just i'm going to choose this card and that's the end of it it does drive what other players put into the sacrifices every time you take a card from the offering you've got to think about how it affects you how it affects the other players so i do like that about the game i'm not too sure about the expansions the oracle and the demon I'm not sure how much they added to it whether it was just extra faff on top of what seems like it's going for simplicity and elegance as its selling point I would say 100% faff. Don't see the reason behind them. Just to sell this game, maybe? Just to say they've done something different? I don't know. It's hard to judge. You haven't played Rapa Nui. You'll know which way to lead it on this. Just throw me out there and make me go first. I have gone for a treasure. But I want to play it with quick playing players. Yeah, for me, I... I actually preferred the artwork in Rapa Nui, and I don't understand why they haven't really changed things in this one. So the game in itself is a treasure, but what they've done with it, it makes it a trap because they haven't done it. Hey, what? Huh? <laughs> I think I would rather go out and buy Rapa Nui for the better artwork is 
pretty much why. So for, it's the mechanically the game's a treasure, but because there's another version of better artwork, you've made it a trap. Yeah. I'm just going to leave that pregnant pause there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll let the listeners be I'm just upset. I'm upset with the publisher for not doing more with it. That's why it's a trap. Well, I can understand that, that I feel like they could have tweaked it, but if the game's good, the game's good. We, 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 yeah. what do do? It's a protest <laughs> trap. <laughs> yeah the, my last game for this episode is the palace of mad king ludwig two to four player game 75 minutes from bezier games designed by ted ausback the designer of castles of mad king ludwig suburbia and colony now in this particular version of this sort of system players are going to build one palace using tiles with a moat gradually growing around the edge you're going to be attempted to claim swans and you're going to be scoring for completing rooms within the palace for completing favors and also for the swans you have collected there is a row of six rooms available to you these rooms will come off five stacks which will become relevant later on your turn one of the things you can be able to do is choose a room from that lineup of them and place it in the palace there's going to be two which are free you might have to place ones to have more of a choice from that lineup you need to connect to a current room that is in play and also connections have colours if you match the colour of the swan on your connection of the room to any other rooms it's connected to you can be able to claim swans off that colour and so will the person who placed the previous rooms that match in order to see who placed the room everyone's going to put a marker on a room to say this is mine so that as we go on you'll realise why you need to mark whose is whose by placing a room if you've completed all of the entrances for any room in the palace there's going to be a room bonus awarded the marker for the player is going to flip over and also you can be able to place the moat now the moat gets placed around the outside of the palace it's one of the ways that can trigger the end of the game it's just square tiles that limit the space you're able to build in there are eight types of room you can place including stairs and halls Halls are free to place, you don't have to pay for them, and they've got lots of connecting swans on them, so maybe they'll allow you to collect more of them. Then stairs allow you to change the level, and you have to have stairs in play in order to place downstairs rooms, and stairs will score points for all the downstairs rooms that are connected to them. Now, depending upon the type of room, when they're completed, you're going to get a bonus, which is going to give you extra swans, free rooms, maybe special secret swans that you take from a bridge and no one knows what you've got. I said that you place moat tiles out whenever rooms completed. As the stacks that we mentioned earlier get depleted, the number of moat tiles that are placed is going to accelerate and the moat is going to get quicker and quicker in filling up. And there you go, that's one way you can finish the game. Other actions you can take, however, because that wasn't everything you can do, you can pay three swans to either take a room tile or a favour tile and place them onto your own blueprints board. Now, if you place a room on there, you place it in one of the six spaces around the edge, and that's going to give you a special power, such as discounts to purchase in tiles, or it's going to give you extra swans, or it's going to give you points at the end of the game. The same spaces you can put rooms in, you can put in favours in, and you're choosing each time which ones to put in. And favours, you choose one from three, and they give you certain conditions which you need to fulfil in order to score points. So most red swans, most completed living rooms, wherever it may be. There are also four of these favours which are public, where everyone's going to be vying for. That will be familiar to you if you've played Castles or Suburbia before. The other ways in which the game can finish is if the rooms or the swans ever run out. You're going to score for completing five of any one type of 
room during the game. Also, if you've completed one, two, or three of every room, that's going to give you bonus points, especially the three. There's a lot of bonus points for doing three off each. You're going to score points for sets of different colour swans. We're going to check to see who's completed favours. As I said, stairs are going to score for all linked downstairs rooms to them. Sean, it is very much a variant on the theme. They've taken Castles of Mad King Ludwig. If you've played that game before, everyone, you'll be quite familiar with a lot of the aspects in here. And they've turned it into a palace. Is it a glittering gin palace for you? Because that's my favourite type of palace. Is it now? Uh, it certainly isn't, Roland. I did not oh. like the look of this game at all when I saw it. It doesn't feel like a palace at all. It's just all these heavily outlined coloured squares everywhere. I know they're, they're themed on rooms, but no, it didn't seem to me looks-wise at all. Yeah. Ted Asprak was on Conversations with Heavy Cardboard recently, and he was saying that he's not really into making his games look pretty. They're just there to look functional, and they almost do it deliberately. And I was kind of chuckling at the screams you'd have emitted at that statement being said to you. Yeah, but I think whereas Suburbia, yeah, I didn't get the looks immediately. Eventually, it did sort of come around to it. But this one, I've seen games close to the end, and I'm still thinking that really doesn't give me the feel of a palace, or it just looks like a, a bunch of squares on a table. It's a little bit messy as well. It's not as clean the design of Suburbia. There's no, a lot going on, absolutely on there, and that kind of runs into the gameplay as well. There's a lot of elements in there. And I can't help feeling that some of the elements might be a step too far, like the blueprints board, where you're choosing the rooms or the favours to do different things, and you're having to keep track of every room that you lay down, and you're scoring points for sets, and you're scoring points for doing lots. There's extra bits, all the different colours of swans. Yeah, I feel like the swans could have just been one colour, and that would have been fine. It wouldn't have been a problem. You use them to, to buy extra rooms, and the, the amount you have at the end scores you a certain number of points. That's okay. Having five different colours feels like a, a fiddliness step too far, possibly. Absolutely. And I think, in my mind, that's going to feed into sort of the end of game scoring when you're trying to go back and see what score, just to, it's going to be sea of colour. And it's going to be really hard to pick things out, I think. I'm not sure. So, Ronan, how did you feel about the all building that thing together? Rather than building your own castle or your own city as in suburbia, how did you feel about everybody joining together to build that thing? Well, this is definitely a complaint that came that before Castles Mag and Liver came out, people were expected to be able to build a big castle. And when they got there, you were only sticking down 10 or 11 rooms, whatever it was. And it didn't feel like you'd really built a castle. It felt like you'd built someone's back shed so i think it's great actually that bezier games have heard that and addressed it and say okay cool let's give people that ability to build the big epic castle they thought they were getting the first time around and that for me is a very positive step sean yeah and obviously being able to interact with people a lot more than just that bidding mechanism so you're able to block each other off and it can be quite nasty now is it going to be nasty just for the sake of it because why not? I've got nothing better to do. Or are you going to be able to make that choice? I'm not that convinced on the nastiness. No? No, I'm not feeling it that much. <laughs> you can you stop know. people's rooms from finishing and sort of make sure that they can't score points. But I suppose, yeah, not not major, major. I don't think it's hugely interactive. I did, one thing I did like a, a change away from Castle Mac and Ludwig is I never liked that set in the price. 
I never enjoyed that at all. And this has gone back more to the suburbia system where there's a lineup and they shuffle along and the ones that have been in the game longest become the cheapest. I'm much happier about that move as well. Yeah, I think the setting the price certainly didn't resonate with a lot of people. I was okay with it. But for me, I'm going to sum up on this one, Ronan. It had me excited building that sort of thing together and thinking that you know, there might be some sort of more interaction involved here. But the looks of the game and the mechanisms don't really sing to me. So for me, it's a trap for the Palace of Mad King Ludwig. Well, I will say that. I read the rule book once and I was really put off and I was like, oh no, I'm not interested. Too much going on. All these different elements, different powers of rooms and colour swans. Too fussy, too fussy. Then I had to read it again because you have to get a decent understanding of the rules to be able to, even our rubbish summaries, we have some understanding of the rules. And on second reading and then third reading, I started to grow on me, Sean. And I started to realise that those elements that I didn't like in Castles of the Ludwig, a lot of them had gone. And he brought in stuff that I do like, including that system from Carcassonne the City, where you wall off the Carcassonne tiles. He's definitely nicked that and used it for the moats. And that works brilliantly in Carcassonne. And there's a real sense of pace to the game. So I think that the rulebook is not very well structured. It's quite fussily laid out. It's hard to pass. I think that the tiles are quite busy and it's doing a lot to put people off. But if you dig deeper, lots here that I like. And I am going treasure for Palace of Mad Kin Ludwig. Okay, last up for this episode, Ronan, is Foyville. Comes from Hook, designed by Udo Pays and two to four players. So in Foyville, we are the citizens of that very place, Foyville. And I'm going to squeeze in a few more Foyville. I'd just like to say, every time you say Foyville, it makes me think of a New York accent. I don't know why. <laughs> Foyville. I'll do you a foiver. <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> Whatever. Carry yeah, on. Anyway. <laughs> and as the citizens of Foyville, we are building up our <laughs> town. Now, Dragomir the dragon has other plans. And if we wake up Dragomir, he's going to come and burn down our town unless we can protect it. Now, in the game, you have a central board, and this central board has city tiles, which you're going to use to build up your own personal cities. You're going to have royal decrees, or which are ways of scoring those personal cities, and you're going to have characters that are going to grant a power activated by a D6 result, very much in the Kingsburg style. So players have a board that holds building tiles, royal decrees, and fairy magic. And on a turn, they're going to roll two dice, and they're going to place these on the characters of the same result. And they're going to take either a city tile from that column, a decree, or use the power of that citizen. The powers are things like you can gamble with the dice, you can steal from other players, you can gain city tiles, repair tiles. So why city tiles? Well, you're going to build up your own city. You're going to have base, a tower, and the sky. And you're going to score these the cities, as I said, with decrees. The decrees are going to score for set collection stacks in a certain way and how big the city is. However, if you were to roll doubles, and we know what a double is now thanks to this rule book, you're going to have a dragon attack. Now, what happens then is the dragon's going to attack, and if you have clouds equal to, or more than, the columns in your city, no damage is done, because the rain clouds are enough that they're going to put out Dragomir's fire. 
If it's the other way around, you're going to lose columns until such time where the clouds are equal to or more than your columns. There are additional characters, that one that duplicates others' powers and one that gives you those fairy magic, which I told you about, which are little tokens that give you little boosts or protect you in some way. Foyville, Ronan. Weird little game. <laughs> so sure. Is this just Kingsburg Light or is there anything more to it? I feel like it's a more condensed Kingsburg I feel like you've got that sort of one building you're building rather than building lots of small buildings. So you're concentrating on that one area and you've just got a few advisors rather than a whole slew of advisors. So, yeah, Kingsburg condensed is what I'm going to go rather than light. That that means something different to light, does it? <laughs> In my feeble mind, yes. Really? Really? Yeah, Around to yeah. semantics, okay. Sure, <laughs> sure. The presentation as well, though. The fact they've got a grumpy goblin and fairy magic. I was quite surprised because when I looked through it, I hadn't looked at the minimum recommended age. And it was 10. And the presentation to me was more like a six-year-old's game. I think it was, yeah, it looks like it was geared towards them. But I think there might have been a bit of a misstep because I think it's slightly deeper than that. Which puts it in a funny situation. It, that's kind of what I was getting was it's presented very light and very young. There's not enough there for gamers, but it's too much for very young kids. I'm wondering what audience this is pitched at. I think there is enough for gamers. I think there's the building of the building. I think there's a lot there. I think there's just about enough for, for gamers. But what I was glad of, Ronan was that description of what a double is. Because I've been going through you, my You life. had a little subtle little dig during the rules explanation. It wasn't <laughs> enough on that, though. You had to carry on. I think it needs bringing up. They actually tell you exactly what a double is. A double is a one and one, a two and a two, a three and a three. Okay. Okay, I've read that. I don't need you to read it out to me again. <laughs> That's a nice, again, the whole way it's written is just for non-gamers. The fact that there's three different levels, wall, tower, and sky. In the sky, the only choice you're making is between two different types of tiles. That's griffins, which can score with those royal decrees and get you some points, or clouds that will protect you from the dragon. It's such a basic system. I felt it was like an entrance level and a a gateway game-ish. I do see what you're saying, and I'm not going to disagree other than to say I think... It appeals to slightly more than just complete non-gamers. So, Sean, this for me is a complete patchwork that doesn't work together. So, Foyville is a trap for me. And I've defended it as to, to a certain degree. I see more in it than you do, obviously. But I don't think there's enough for me personally. So, it is a trap. And that's Foyville. Thank you very much for joining us on this third of our Essen treasure hunts. We've got one more coming out for you on Tuesday, and then we'll be live from the show. Absolutely, Ronan. We are getting really, really close to Essen. As I said before, it's within touching distance. Just got those last 12 previews to come, and and then we'll be there. And we'll be in various places while we're there. If you see us knocking around the halls wearing our Game Pit t-shirt, please come up and say hello to us. We do love to meet everybody. And we'll be on the Dice Tower booth at 1 o'clock on both the Thursday and the Friday, Ronan. 
We will indeed. And don't forget to find the Game Pit channel on YouTube and subscribe because we will be producing pit stop videos throughout the whole weekend of Essen and into the following couple of weeks. And it will give you a chance to get a visual overview of these new games that are coming out just in a couple of minutes. Absolutely, yes. Rod has been doing some excellent work in showcasing some of those new games for us. And long may that continue. And as always... We are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for Game of Goodness Galore. If you wish to contact us, we are on email at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on the Board Game Geek Guild. Go there and talk to us about whatever you wish. We're on social media. We're on Facebook. We have an Instagram page. And we're on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. If you wish to download the episodes, we're on Stitcher, Podbean, and iTunes. And as Ron has just mentioned, we do have a YouTube channel, so please pop along there and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you very soon. Music by E. Aaron. <laughs>